Zechariah 13, 7 to 9, and today our verses are 8 and 9. We'll read verse 7. This is about Christ and his sheep, and then verses 8 and 9, the remnant who are saved. Verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. And it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. Amen. Verse 7, verses 7 to 9, we have a section in this chapter that addresses mostly the remnant or the elect, the, the believers, the saved. As it is common in Scripture, both Old and New Testaments, sometimes there will be a discourse or a paragraph or a statement in relation to the wicked, and then it will alternate to describe what God thinks of the righteous and what God does with the righteous. This is what we primarily have in verses 7 to 9. What God does to the righteous, here called the sheep, and then by uh, verse 8, the third part Verse 9, the third part is refined. They will call on the name of the Lord. They are my people. The Lord is my God. The third part says to God. And so in this way, it's a passage of encouragement. The basis of their salvation is in verse 7. As we saw last time, the shepherd, my shepherd, is the shepherd of the father. This is the father speaking of his son, who is called my shepherd, the man, my associate, and then the father is the one who says, strike the shepherd. God is in control. God the father is in control, even over the death of his son, called the shepherd, my shepherd, and even the scattering of the sheep, which was fulfilled in a particular incident in Matthew 26, 31 and Mark 14, 27. When Jesus was arrested, his disciples scattered from him. They all scattered and fled in fear of their own life. But God is in control, and God brought them back. And he is in control not only of them, but all of the remnant. All of the remnant, which is what he takes up in verses 8 and 9. He addresses what happens in all the land. Not just in reference to the 11 disciples in verse 7, but in reference to all the land or all the earth, all the people that God redeems by the death of his son. That death, of course, is immediately implied in verse 7. And then in 13, verse 1, the fountain for sin and impurity, that's 13, 1. In 12, verse 10, they will look on me whom they have pierced, 12, verse 10. The piercing is a reference to the piercing of the Son of God on the cross. 13 verse 3 makes it clear that piercing has to do with killing someone. Killing someone, 13 verse 3. So, now we turn our attention to what God does in saving the remnant. Verse 8. It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord. This That declaration is for those who are in all the land, not only in a particular incident, the incident of verse 7, but what God does generally, what he does generally, universally, and historically. And what is it that he does? Verse 8 explains that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. Two parts will be cut off. They'll die and perish. The third part will be left. And then the third part is further explained in verse 9. And I will bring the third part through the fire. What does he mean when he says two parts, third part? He's talking about the two parts, the majority of people, 
are those who perish. And then the third part that's left, they don't perish, but they are refined by fire. He doesn't mean literally that two-thirds of the earth will die and go to hell, and one-third of the earth will go to heaven. He doesn't mean it that way. He's simply illustrating by giving an example, two plus one, or the two parts and then the third part. This is a mere illustration to give us an idea, some kind of uh, example of how God makes a division and the majority of people, they perish. And only a few or some of them who remain, the remnant, the survivors of the earth, they are the ones who are saved. This is simply the way God is using an illustration. That's all he's doing. He's not speaking of a literal number such as 66% or 66.66% are going to be perishing and then the rest are going to be saved. He doesn't mean it that way in that particular situation. And we'll see that that is the case in other parts of Scripture. Let's first go to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6, where he's going to speak in terms of a tenth, a tenth, one out of ten. Isaiah 6, and we'll start at verse 8. Isaiah 6, 8 to 13. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and repent and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. In this commission of Isaiah, the prophet God sends him and then tells him before he is sent out what's going to happen when he preaches. What will happen in verses 9 and 10? People will be listening and looking. They have hearts, but their eyes, their ears, and their hearts will not respond favorably to the message preached by Isaiah the prophet. They won't listen. God has foreordained that that will happen in Isaiah's generation and throughout every generation, that the vast majority of people who hear the words of God, they don't care or they don't understand or they don't have faith. Their hearts are hard, insensitive. They don't have spiritual eyes to see or spiritual ears to hear. They don't have it. And then Isaiah the prophet, verse 11, he asks the Lord, how long? How long am I going to preach like this? Is this the way my ministry is going to be? Is it going to be that unfruitful? And God's basic answer is yes. Verses 11 to 13. Lord, how long? And he answered, the Lord answers, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant. Houses are without people and the land is utterly desolate. And the Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. He's describing basically ghost towns everywhere, is he not? Where everybody has abandoned, or everybody has been killed, and there are bodies strewn everywhere on the streets, and nobody to bury them, and the only ones who are doing anything about the dead bodies are the wild animals, the dogs, the hogs, the birds of prey coming and feasting on the flesh of human corpses everywhere. 
That's what he's describing in verses 11 and 12. And then those who are alive were removed or exiled and shipped off, deported to foreign countries. That's what he's describing in 11 and 12. Utter devastation because of the sins of the people. There's hardly a righteous man in the cities of Judah. 13. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, a tenth portion. Here, his illustration is one out of ten. There's going to be a small percentage, a meager percentage, one out of ten, or ten out of a hundred, or a hundred out of a thousand. The thousand say, yes, I believe. The hundred say, yes, yes, I'm a believer. I belong to the Lord. But those who truly believe are ten out of a hundred or one out of ten, the tenth portion he's describing here. And even the tenth portion, verse 13, will be again subject to burning. And then like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. You might have, you might have a forester going into the forest, cutting down trees. He cuts down the tree in the vast majority of the tree, but he leaves the stump remaining. Tall trees, tens or hundreds of feet tall, he's able to axe them and fell them and make them fall to the ground, but he leaves just the stump a little bit above on the earth, on the surface of the ground, and then the roots underneath. He leaves the stump. That's the way the remnant are. That which was cut down and cut off, that's like the wicked, and the remnant are like a stump. And he says the holy seed is its stump. A few as opposed to the many. Ezekiel chapter 5. Ezekiel 5. Ezekiel 5, and we read, we'll read verses 1 to 12. Ezekiel describes it in similar ways to Zechariah, in terms of 2 plus 1. 5 verse 1. As for you, son of man, take a sharp sword. Take and use it as a barber's razor on your head and beard. Then take scales for weighing and divide the hair. One third you shall burn in the fire at the center of the city when the days of the siege are completed. Then you shall take one third and strike it with the sword all around the city and one third you shall scatter to the wind and I will unsheath a sword behind them. Take also a few in number from them and bind them in the edges of your robes. And take again some of them and throw them into the fire and burn them in the fire. From it a fire will spread to all the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her at the center of the nations with lands around her. But she has rebelled against my ordinances more wickedly than the nations and against my statutes more than the lands which surround her. For they have rejected my ordinances and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have more turmoil than the nations which surround you and have not walked in my statutes, nor observed my ordinances, nor observed the ordinances of the nations which surround you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, even I, am against you. And I will execute judgments among you in the sight of the nations. And because of all your abominations, I will do among you what I have not done, and the like of which I will never do again. Therefore, fathers will eat their sons among you, and sons will eat their fathers. For I will execute judgments on you and scatter all your remnant to every wind. So as I live, declares the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable idols and with all your abominations, 
Therefore I will also withdraw, and my eye shall have no pity, and I will not spare. One third of you will die by plague, or be consumed by famine among you. One third will fall by the sword around you, and one third I will scatter to every wind, and I will unsheath a sword behind them. The Lord, this is the kingdom of Judah before the Babylonians came, before and during the time of the Babylonians. Ezekiel is a contemporary, and he himself was exiled by the Babylonians. He's describing how God's judgment on Judah is a well-deserved judgment because they did more wickedly than the nations around them. They wouldn't follow the laws of the Lord. They wouldn't even follow the semi or partially good laws of the surrounding nations. They behaved more wickedly than the surrounding nations. Therefore, God's judging them. And he illustrates with the use of Ezekiel's hair and how Ezekiel was to cut it and then have it used for different purposes in order to illustrate how God's going to deal with different groups of people and how he's going to punish them. Of course, Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Daniel, all of these major prophets were prophets during this period of exile, of the Babylonians. They are among the few who were elect believers, only a few. The rest of them were entirely deserving of the judgment that God brought on them. This concept of the remnant is not something that is belonging only to the Old Testament. It's not as though God was severe and austere in the Old Testament, and then in the New Testament, He changes His character and becomes merciful, gracious, and loving, long-suffering, and unconditional in love, and eternal in love. That's not the way it is. Luke 13, Luke 13, 13, 22, Luke 13, 22 to 24. And he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter by the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. The question, are there just a few who are being saved? Are there just a few who are being saved? And is Jesus' answer essentially yes or no? His answer is yes because of verse 24. Strive Strive. It doesn't say take a leisurely walk. It doesn't say take a vacation. It says strive. To strive means to exert much effort. Strive to enter by the narrow door. The door is narrow. It's not a wide door. It's a narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Many seek to enter, but they seek to enter the wrong way. That's why they never enter. The wrong way. And then God's mercy. People think God's mercy is unconditional and eternal. Yet, notice in 25 to 30, it's not that way at all. And this is Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, explaining this. The one that everybody says is so gentle and loving He's long-suffering, and a lot of people will go to heaven. Most people will go to heaven. Everybody, every Christian is going to heaven. People of all denominations will go. You can't say you're the only ones. Well, look at 25 to 30. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you be begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us, then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, 
I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evil doers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth there when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being cast out. And they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. It's not as easy as people imagine it is to get to heaven. Those who are first here will be last there. And if you're last there, that means you're cut off and you will perish. If we are last here, we will be first there, which means we are the third part that God brings through the fire and saves and grants eternal life. We continue to Romans 9, Romans chapter 9, 9.25. We'll actually start at 9.27. We'll come back to this chapter. But 9.27 to 29, where he cites the prophet Isaiah to teach the doctrine of the, of the remnant, 9.27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become as Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Isaiah in Isaiah, uh, in verse 27, he quotes Isaiah 10, 22. In verse 28, he quotes Isaiah 10, 23. And in verse 29, he quotes Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9. Isaiah preached the remnant, the doctrine of the remnant. Ezekiel did. And here now the apostle is based on Isaiah, which means it is also a New Testament New covenant truth. It's a new covenant doctrine here in Romans 9. And what is it? Verse 27. Israel, in terms of their physical number, may be as the sand of the sea. Innumerable like the sand of the sea. Nobody can count the sand of the sea on any seashore. Right? Israel is that way physically. But spiritually... He says, the remnant will be saved. The remnant, not all, not the vast majority, just a few compared to the rest. As well, verse 28, the Lord will execute his word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly. God is the one in control of who's saved and who's unsaved, not man by his free will or good will, but God is. And he will also judge He'll make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked so that there are few righteous compared to the many wicked. Few in percentage. Not few in quantity, but few in percentage. And God's in control of it. In such control, verse 29, that if the Lord had not been merciful to Judah as he was, then the people would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. And how many were saved in Sodom and Gomorrah? There were five cities, and four of them were destroyed. One of them was spared because Lot requested to go flee there. And eventually he left there and went to a cave. How many were saved from Sodom? Lot's wife, she turned back and became a pillar of salt. Genesis 19.26. So she was not a true believer. Though she escaped the fire and brimstone of Sodom that God rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, she did not escape God's judgment by becoming a pillar of salt. Lot. Lot. His daughters showed how wicked they were in sexual relations with him, but Lot was the only one. 
So God's saying here through Isaiah, I was more merciful to you, Judah, because I could have made you resemble Sodom and Gomorrah. And actually, at least, there were more than this, but at least there were three times more saved in Judah than in Sodom. We have Lot saved from Sodom. That's one. And in terms of Judah, there's Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. There were more than that in Judah, but at least in terms of names that we know clearly, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Not very many. Not very many. Romans 11. Romans 11, verses... One to five, or one to seven. Let's read one to seven. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? That which Israel is seeking for, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Illustrating from his own life in verse 1, that he is a part of the remnant in Israel. He is a Jew as well. Then in 2 to 4, 2 to 4, he shows us, with Elijah's example. Elijah was basically a loner. Elijah plus 7,000 others in the land of Israel in a time when they had at least 7 million people and likely tens of millions of people in the land of Israel in the, in the days of Elijah, which would have been about 850 B.C. Only 7,000 out of 7 million? That's not a big number. And he says, verse 5, In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's choice. As it was in Elijah's day, so it is in our day, Paul says. This is the way in every generation that God saves a remnant. Even though in Elijah's day, they all thought they were fine. They all thought they had a relationship with God. They all thought that they were righteous and going to heaven. The same in Paul's day. You think that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Herodians, the Zealots, you think that they all thought they were going to hell? No. They thought they were going to heaven. And they were the teachers and leaders of the people. Thought they were going to heaven. Here he's saying, no, it happens, how? It happens on the basis of God's gracious choice. He saves a remnant, and even though Israel is seeking for it, just like we read in Luke 13, many will seek for it, but they will not find it, they will not obtain it. Same thing here. They are seeking for it, but they're seeking for it in the wrong way. They don't understand the true gospel, why Jesus died on the cross, why he rose from the dead, why all of it was necessary, repentance and faith in him. They don't understand it all because they're not chosen. Those who are chosen obtained it, the rest were hardened. This is the same doctrine of the prophet Zechariah in 500 B.C. 500 B.C., Zechariah 13 Eight. A third part will be left. Okay, now that the third part is left, what does God do with the third part? 
the two parts, two-thirds, they are cut off and perish, which means they are destroyed, they don't receive eternal life. But then the third part, while they remain on the earth, what does God do with them? It's not as though God saves them and then just leaves them alone, and then he's concerned about people on other planets, as some people think and wish. That's not the way it works. He's still intimately acquainted with all our ways. He is still concerned about the hair that falls from our head. They are all numbered. He's still concerned for us. And in what way does he show his concern? By purifying us, by purging us, by sanctifying us. And by purge, I don't mean in purgatory. I mean purgation or purification here on the earth. That's what the Bible teaches, not purgatory. Verse 9, what will he do? And I will bring the third part through the fire. The third part goes through the fire of affliction now. The third part goes through the furnace of affliction now. That's what happens to the third part. Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 1 to 6. Malachi 3, 1 to 6. Speaking of God purifying through the fires of affliction the righteous, the elect, the saved. 3, verse 1. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offspring of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. In verse 1, he's speaking primarily of Jesus Christ, the coming of Jesus Christ. The messenger, not the messenger of the covenant, but my messenger, that is John the Baptist. We gather that from Matthew 11:10 and 14 and Mark 1 verse 2. My messenger of verse 1 is the messenger is John the Baptist, but the messenger of the covenant is the Lord himself, the Lord Jesus. And throughout this is the Lord Jesus primarily in verse 1. But when the Lord Jesus comes, what's his purpose? Verse 2. Who's going to be able to endure the day of his coming? Is it going to be casual? Is it going to be buddy-buddy, according to verse 2? No. Who can endure? Who can stand when he appears? He's like a refiner's fire, which has to be ablaze, which has to be very hot in order to purify gold and silver. You're not going to purify gold and silver by a fire that's 50 degrees or 100 degrees or 150 degrees. It has to be much higher than that in order to purify gold and silver. And then fuller soap. A fuller is a laundryman. A good laundryman has soap that's going to make your dirty white clothes clean and bright white. 
That's what he's going to do if he's got good soap. And the Lord Jesus does have good soap. He's got spiritual soap that will clean and cleanse the soil. So verse 3, he's going to be like a smelter and a purifier. That's the purpose of the coming of the Lord Jesus, to be a smelter and purifier. He's not one that says, okay, you're saved, I'm glad you're in, and that's it. That's not the way it works. Because he wants them, what? To present offerings in righteousness, verse 3. Not wickedness, righteousness. And then in verse 4, to be pleasing to the Lord. And how so? Verse 5, no longer practicing sorcery, adultery, swearing falsely, oppression, and no fear of God. They will instead have the fear of God and not practice these sins anymore. And therefore not be consumed and destroyed in the fire. Isaiah chapter 48. Isaiah, actually let's go first to Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43. 43, 1 to 7. 43, verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched nor will the flame burn you. Is he talking about literal rivers and high waters? Is he talking about a literal fire? Or is he talking about a figurative fire, a spiritual fire? He's talking about spiritual. Verse 3, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sabah in your place. In other words, Egypt, Cush, and Sabah, wicked nations, I'm going to cut them off. They are going to perish, but not you, because I'm saving you. Why? Verse 4, since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. God saves them, but also brings them through rivers and fires. And the furnace of affliction, that phrase is actually in Isaiah 48 48.10 Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. If we had any doubts whether he was talking about a literal fire, he clarifies in 48.10. I'm not talking about a literal fire where silver is put in a literal fire, a physical fire. I'm talking about a spiritual fire. I have refined you, but not as silver in a literal fire. I have tested you, how? Refined you, how? In the furnace of affliction. This means that the righteous, the saved, the elect, the believers, they have, in God's purposes, they have been destined or predestined for affliction. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14, 22. Acts 14, 22. 2 Timothy 3, 12. And indeed, all who desire to live godly 
in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. James chapter 1. James 1, 2 to 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. How should we take our various trials? With all joy. Consider it all joy. Not begrudgingly, not carping and complaining, but with joy. Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith, this test is like testing gold and silver in a literal fire, refining it and purifying it, smelting it in a fire. But our faith must have this same kind of test to produce endurance with a perfect result, to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God's means of getting rid of sin in our life is by putting us through trials. Verse 12, James 1:12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. There's a blessing upon us when we persevere under trial, because once God approves of us, we receive the crown of life, we who love him. 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter 1, 6 to 9, 1 Peter 1, 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. In this, that is, the salvation that is awaiting us, that's what he's describing in verses 1 to 9. He says, in this you greatly rejoice. We rejoice in salvation. Though now for a little while, for a little while, when he says little while, if we're, a, if we're believers now and we live to be 70 or 80 years, that's going to be decades. It doesn't seem like a little while, but little while compared to eternity, it's a short time. It's a little while. He says, if necessary, and if necessary doesn't mean it's not necessary if necessary, and it is necessary. This is the kind of conditional clause he means. If necessary means, as it is necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Why is it necessary then? That the proof of your faith, the proof of our faith has to be manifested. Just like the proof of the gold and silver through the fire, the proof has to come forth with the elements, the worthless elements, the alloys going away, and then only the gold remains. That's the proof of how much gold is there. That's the same with our faith. The proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, it's going to be okay. Because gold remains, though tested by fire. So if you have a golden faith, it's going to remain, even though it's tested by fire. The fire of affliction, the furnace of affliction. 
And then it's going to result in praise, glory, honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because ultimately, through our love and faith in him, we will greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. This is how we persevere when we experience trials, testings, difficulties, afflictions. 1 Peter 4, 1 Peter 4, 12, 1 Peter 4, 12 to 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name, let him glorify God. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Verse 12, we should not be surprised. Why should we not be surprised? Because Christ told us in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, he told us in Matthew 5, 10 to 12, that it's going to happen. He also told us in John 15, 18 to 20, that if, it, if they persecuted the master, they're going to persecute the slave of the master. He told us that. And then if we read Genesis to Malachi, and we have a summary of those saints, not an exhaustive one, but a summary of them in Hebrews 11, didn't they also undergo the furnace of affliction in Hebrews 11 in the Old Testament? So in that, those ways, we should not be surprised. Jesus, the prophets, the apostles, they teach it again and again and again. So we shouldn't be surprised. It's a fiery ordeal. It's a fiery ordeal. Why does he call it fiery? Because it's the furnace of affliction, the fire of affliction. It's our testing, and we share the sufferings of Christ. When we share the sufferings of Christ, he's the head, we are the body. If the head suffered, shouldn't the body suffer? And then when our head does suffer, even in our physical life, doesn't the rest of our body suffer too? Yes. In the same way, the body of Christ in the spiritual realm. When we share the sufferings of Christ, we should keep on rejoicing. That's the way we sustain our Christian life and persevere. Keep on rejoicing because when he appears, we will, have, we will rejoice with exultation. If it's for the name of Christ, verse 14 and 16. Verses 14 and 16, if it is for the name of Christ, if we are following the righteousness of Christ, not if we are evildoers, verse 15, which means there can be no Christian murderers, no Christian thieves, Christian evildoers, Christian troublesome meddlers, or any other combination, Christian homosexual. Christian disobedient to parents. Christian idolaters. Th those don't go together. Nothing like that goes together. That's why he's clarifying in verse 15. Because many people think, well, yeah, it's okay if I'm a fornicator and I'm a Christian, I'm going to heaven. Adulterous Christians go to heaven. Thieving Christians go to heaven. 
Lying Christians go to heaven. Covetous Christians go to heaven. Idolatrous Christians go to heaven. Taking God's name in vain, vain Christians go to heaven. People think that. But it doesn't work that way. This is a part of our purification. We reject sin. We're not living that way. And then he says in 17 to 19, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, when does he mean it then? And in verse 18, and if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved. So when is this judgment beginning with the household of God? When is the difficulty for the righteous starting? Now, through the furnace of affliction. It starts now. So if it starts now and we are being purged, purified, to one day face the Lord Jesus with joy inexpressible, rejoice with exultation. If that's the case, then it's suffering now, but joy or full joy later. It's persecution now, tribulation now, trials now, and happiness forever with the Lord. Sufferings first, glory second, Romans eight seventeen. That's what he's saying here. But then if the world... If the world is fat and happy now, what's going to happen to them? If the world is fat and happy now, he says in 17 and 18, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Verse 18, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? It's better to be in the furnace of affliction now than to be in the lake of fire later. These are the only two options. Furnace of affliction now, lake of fire later. There's fire both ways. Which fire is better? That's what Peter's describing. That's what Isaiah's describing. That's what uh, Zechariah is describing. And same here. So verse 19, the conclusion, Therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. That's our lifelong task. Do what's right, entrust our souls to our creator, suffer according to the will of God, and it will all be well for us. This is what... Zechariah is preaching and the whole Bible is preaching. This is for us now. To be refined as silver is refined and to be tested as gold is tested. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.